When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, what time of day you make a big decision has a lot to do with how good it is. Then, an interesting quirk of humans that can get us into trouble, and that is, we think we're smarter than we really are. For most things, we know remarkably little, and yet, we always we tend to have that misperception that we understand things more deeply than we do. If I ask you how a zipper works, most people say, oh yeah, I know how a zipper works, and then I say, okay, explain it to me, and they go, uh, whoops. <laughs> also, why do cars have parking lights? And the good news is we're eating healthier than we used to. The bad news is not much healthier. We are truly facing a national nutrition crisis. We have more diet-related disease in terms of obesity, type 2 diabetes, poor brain health in adults. There is so much diet-related disease in our country, it's, it's estimated to be the number one cause of poor health. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to another episode of Something You Should Know. Think for a moment, just think for a moment of how many decisions you make in a day. And some of those decisions that you make are probably pretty important ones. And as it turns out, when you make a decision, what time of day you make it, can really impact how good a decision you make. And it appears that when it comes to making big decisions, mornings are best. Even the wisest people don't make good choices when they're not rested and their glucose is low, according to social psychologist Roy Baumeister. That's why smart people don't restructure their company at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They don't make major commitments during the cocktail hour. And if a decision does have to be made late in the day, they know not to do it on an empty stomach. When your glucose is low, your brain responds more strongly to immediate rewards and less likely to prioritize long-term prospects. In conclusion, have a snack, maybe a nap, and maybe just wait till tomorrow morning to make that decision. And that is something you should know. Human beings, probably including you and me, tend to think that we're a lot smarter than we really are, and we often believe things that are simply not true. Now, that may sound like a pretty big, sweeping, bold statement, but in fact, it appears to be true. That's what humans do. And there are some ramifications to, as you might might imagine, 
into believing things that just don't happen to be true. And here to discuss and explain why we do this and why it's important is Philip Fernbach. He's an associate professor at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he's author of the book, The Knowledge Illusion. Hey, Philip, thanks for being on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. So I think this is rather unsettling to a lot of people to hear that we're not as smart as we think we are and that we believe things that are not true because because we like to think we are as smart as we think we are and we like to we like to believe that what we believe is true but you say no it's a remarkable uh, feature of human beings that we can come to believe things that are um, verifiably false not based in fact and in, in fact, entire groups of people can come to believe things that aren't true, which is pretty amazing. Um, and that goes from everything from sort of beliefs about common household objects, like believing we understand how a toilet works, all the way to some of the most important things that we grapple with in our lives, like um, political policies or beliefs about other people and all kinds of other things. I have no idea how a toilet works, but it's pretty amazing that it does. I'm so, and I'm so glad it does, but I have no illusion that I think I understand how it works. That's why I have a plumber on my speed dial. <laughs> That's funny. So you're actually a bit of an odd duck in that respect because um, there's a, uh, a really a compelling set of experiments that was done by a, a psychologist named Frank Kyle back in the 1990s. What he did in these experiments was ask people about how well they felt they understood sort of common everyday objects, like toilets, which is my favorite example, but other things like zippers or can openers, pretty much anything you can think of. And the general phenomenon is that when you ask people how well they understand those kinds of things, they sort of nod their head. And yet what happens in the next phase of the experiment is, I will ask you to explain to me in detail exactly how it works. And that's when people really try to reach inside and they don't find much there. They have a lot of trouble actually generating anything in the way of an explanation. So it actually turns out that for most things, we know remarkably little about the way that the world works. And yet we always we tend to have that misperception that we understand things more deeply than we do. <laughs> I love this because see, I have I would never pretend to you that I know how a zipper works. I have no clue how a zipper works. I just know it works. And that's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. And that's one reason that people suffer from this illusion is that we usually don't think at that level, uh, that lower level of detail because it's not really necessary to do so. As you say, you can always call up the plumber if the toilet breaks. Um, and we're, but we're not used to thinking at that level of detail and unpacking things. Um, and so we tend to see things as being more simple than they are. Now, some people are kind of like you where um, if I ask you how a zipper works, you sort of mentally ask yourself the question before you answer and you say, hmm, I guess I don't really know. But most people aren't like that at all. Most people say, oh yeah, I know how a zipper works. And then I say, okay, explain it to me. And they go, uh, whoops. <laughs> now there are certain areas of expertise or areas where the complexity is just kind of obvious where we wouldn't suffer this kind of an illusion. Like if you ask somebody on the street, do you know how a particle accelerator works? They would probably say, no, I have no clue. But many things that we interact with all the time, that we have this sort of illusion of familiarity with them and we feel like we understand them. Another great example is, is a bicycle. We have this great experiment, uh, which was done by a psychologist named Rebecca Lawson, where she basically gave people a schematic of a bicycle and just asked them to draw in a couple missing parts of the bicycle. And it seems like it should be really easy, but it's a super hard task. Turns out that if you sit down and try to draw a bicycle, um, 99% of us are going to fail really badly. And, and it's, it's pretty remarkable because, again, it's something that we have tons of experience with. The bottom line is that the human mind is just not designed or built to store a lot of detailed information. We tend to take in the world at a much coarser, more simplistic level. It seems like, although I, I don't understand a lot of things, zippers yeah. and toilets and things, there are some things I think I am pretty smart at. And yeah. I probably am. Absolutely. So that starts to get into the second major theme, uh, which I'm really interested in, which is why we have this, this illusion of knowledge and why individuals don't know so little about the world. And the answer is that human beings are not really built for individual thinking. Um, what we're built for is thinking in groups. 
where individual, uh, individuals can have specialized knowledge. If you think about all of the things that humankind accomplishes, it relies on this incredibly distributed network of knowledge. Think about hopping on an airplane, right? Not one person on that airplane who knows everything about how the airplane works and how to fly it and so on. It's this incredible joint pursuit of engineers, pilots, crew, passengers, everybody coming together where each individual knows a little bit and together we can know a lot. And so certainly we all have our areas of expertise. Now I will say that I am a, an academic. So I'm like the world expert on the tiniest little slice of knowledge in the world. And yet I continuously am learning how poorly I understand that little tiny sliver and how much more there is to know. And so the world is just remarkably complex. And so, yes, you probably are a relative expert in certain areas. However, uh, there's always more to learn. Yeah, well, you'll never know everything about anything, but you, but you, but I don't know that you have to, right? I mean, you just need to know enough. Absolutely, you need to know enough, and that's a really important insight because um, if I want to um, take a position, for instance, on whether climate change is real or not, or whether the um, healthcare policy that's being um, supported by my group is a good one. There's just no way that I can be an expert on those topics. I could spend an afternoon doing some reading and know more than I know now, but hey, hundreds of PhD theses get written about these topics. And in the end, what you have, but you, you are obligated to take a position. Like you have to take a position on these things. You can't just throw up your hands and say, well, it's just too complicated, I'll never know, because that's just a recipe for disaster. Instead, we do have to rely on the experts in our communities and we do have to rely on the information we get from those people we're never going to know it all ourselves however that doesn't mean that we have to act like know-it-alls when we don't know what the heck we're talking about so we should um, behave with a little bit more intellectual humility than we do a lot of the time and what that means is that having um, attitudes that are more calibrated to how well we understand an issue it doesn't mean not taking a position do you think from looking at this, are people who think they know how a toilet works also the guy that thinks he knows how a zipper works and also the guy who thinks, in other words, do the people who tend to think they know everything think they know everything? I think there is an individual difference in the extent to which people are in general susceptible to this illusion of knowledge. And one idea we've looked at is called cognitive reflection which um, was discovered by this guy named Shane Frederick. And um, basically what it is, is you take a, uh, this, this little math test. And in this math test, they're very easy questions, but they're trick questions. And so anybody who spends a sufficient amount of time actually sitting down and working them out will get the right answer. They're not very difficult. However, there's an incorrect answer that kind of pops into your head. And the people who respond with that incorrect answer tend to be more susceptible to that illusion of knowledge because they're less reflective. Um, there's this idea in psychology called dual systems theory. The idea that we have two systems for making judgments and decisions. One is evolutionarily ancient and very fast and automatic, and you're not aware of it happening. That's what happens when an answer just pops into your head. The other system called system two is this um, more deliberative kind of thinking the sort of thinking where you're having a conversation with yourself in your head, you're maybe working through a math problem. And those are really two separate systems. And some people are more dominated by that system one, um, that automatic system than others. And those two people tend to be the, uh, more, a little more susceptible to this illusion of knowledge. And I think it's because they don't try to explain the world a lot of the time. They just sort of nod along and say, yeah, I got this, I understand this. Whereas some people have more of a tendency before responding to actually think through things a little more. And then they, that sort of reveals the gaps in their knowledge. We're discussing this illusion of knowledge that I, I guess we all suffer from, uh, that idea that we're not as smart as we think we are, and we actually believe things that are not true. My guest is Philip Fernbach. He is author of the book, The Knowledge Illusion. A shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. 
Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird, and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Philip, given what you've said, what does it mean to be smart? That's a great question. Great question. There's way too much of a focus on smart as being this thing that the psychologists called G. G is short for general intelligence. And it's what we try to measure um, when we take IQ tests. IQ tests typically um, measure how fast you are at processing information, how much information you can retain, and uh, whether you can solve sort of anagrams and things like that. All of these things that measure a very specific kind of mental horsepower. What I would argue is that because human beings are not really built for individual thinking, what we are built for is working together as a team to pursue complex goals. A more important kind of intelligence is really not about how much mental horsepower you have, but how much you can actually contribute to a group doing well or solving some complex task. And there's a million different ways to be smart. A good team is not gonna have 10 people on it who all have incredible horsepower and ability to solve anagrams. What they're going to do is they're going to have complementary abilities to really work together to solve a problem. Um, and, you know, this, this idea of G, it does correlate with achievement to some extent, you know, life satisfaction, achievement, things like that. But it's a pretty weak correlation. Um, and one danger is that people see that as the only way to be smart. And they think that if they are not good at solving anagrams or solving tricky math problems really quickly, that they're dumb or something and that they can't contribute and so on. And so it's a very narrow vision, a view of what it means to be smart. By the way, as an academic, I run into people all the time who have incredible mental horsepower and, you know, they're good at some things, but trust me, they're not brilliant by any stretch at everything. So, um, yeah, I think as a society, we really should be taking a broader view of what it means to be smart. Yeah, because going back to the toilet again, um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's really smart for me not to try to fix it if it's broken, yeah. because I know I don't have the aptitude to fix it. I don't get it. My dad, yeah. and I know some other people, they may have never fixed a toilet, but they have that mechanical whatever it is, the chances are if they took it apart, they would figure it out and they could fix it. Right. So right. taking a shot at it is probably a pretty smart thing to do. My right. taking a shot at it is probably not a very smart thing to do. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So if you are good at evaluating your own capabilities, um, and, and that's great. One sort of dark side to that idea is that as human beings, we react a lot to demonstrations of confidence. When someone acts in a confident way, we usually take that as a sign of competence. And so people get kind of conditioned to behave as if they 
understand everything and they can deal with any situation because that's kind of what we look to for, to our, for our leaders. When a leader says, well, I'm not really the expert on that. I'm going to delegate it to someone else, or I'm going to find someone who knows that area better than I do. Well, in some types of cultures, corporate cultures, that is seen as a benefit, but a lot of the time, not so much. Um, we often want the CEO to act like they've got everything figured out. So I, I do think there's a danger that we can be overconfident sort of because we get um, reinforced by people responding positively to behaviors that, you know, acts of confidence. It can lead to leaders that are sort of overconfident and domineering, I think. But do people generally have a pretty good sense of what they're good at, what, what their aptitudes are, or what you're describing, a, it sounds as if people aren't? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great um, question. And, and let me give you an example. There's um, a phenomenon called, which probably many of your listeners, listeners have heard about, because it's a pretty famous idea, um, called the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, named after uh, a psychologist named David Dunning and uh, another guy named Justin Kruger. They do studies where they measure people's aptitude at a task, and they also look at people's confidence about how good they are at that task. And it actually turns out that the people who are the worst at the task are actually the worst at evaluating their own aptitude. And they call that unskilled and unaware. And basically what the idea is, is that in a domain where you don't really understand the domain very well because you're a novice, you also don't have the skills for evaluating how good you are. So they, they could do a study, for instance, where they um, test how funny people are. And you can have independent raters gauge if people are funny or not. And you can also ask people how funny they think they are relative to their peers. And the least funny people are the most overconfident about their funniness. And that's sort of a general phenomenon that applies to all kinds of things like how much you understand or know, how good you are at, ta at various tasks and so on. Um, so the answer is, to, to your question is, in general, no. People are very bad at evaluating their aptitude, especially when they're new to an area, when they're novices. It also seems that no, no matter how smart you are or you were, unless you do something, unless you study something or fix toilets on a regular basis, you're not going to stay good at anything. Oh, yeah, that's, that's another great observation. So it's not only that we fail to retain or that, we, that we, we don't have a lot of detailed information, but we also don't retain detailed information very well. So I'm a teacher, and if I teach students a bunch of facts – about the subject matter, um, literally a week or two after the semester is over, all of that stuff will be gone. Um, what we retain is sort of the deeper stuff. And so um, unless you're using that knowledge, detailed information that doesn't have that sort of deeper structure to it is gonna tend to fade. Let, let me give you another example. I leased a car several years ago and I was trying to get a good deal. So I spent an afternoon understanding the math behind how leases work. And I went into the car dealership and the dealer was all, all, all kind of nervous and, and like shocked because they'd never met someone before who actually understood the math behind leases. Um, I went to lease another car a year or two later and I had completely forgotten everything I had learned and I had to relearn it. Now, when I relearned it, it was easier because I did have a little bit of those deeper structures ingrained there, but I didn't have the details. So if we don't use those details, um, they're going to they're gonna fade pretty quickly in general. You know, I wonder what it means, because you'll hear this all the time. People will say, oh, God, you know, Bob is so smart. Well, yeah. well, what do people mean when they say Bob is so smart? Is it that Bob knows everything? Or what, what makes people believe that somebody is smart? Uh, so you also hear people sometimes say Bob is so wise. And that means something very different a lot of the time. Um, and I think it does come back to this idea that often people are impressed by shows of incredible mental horsepower. But people can also be uh, incredibly impressed by someone who is thoughtful and deliberative and a good listener and sort of sees the world in a different way. Um, and so um, there's a lot of different ways of being, uh, being smart or being wise. Um, and I do think that we overreact to these kind of shows of mental horsepower. Well, as you were talking, I'm thinking of, of people like my, I had an uncle who was just, he was an academic. He was a professor at Yale in, yeah. in the economics department. You know, he skipped several grades growing up. He, he was so smart. 
but you wouldn't want him to fix your toilet. <laughs> Absolutely. We as human beings have a narrow slice of the world that we can master. And some people have more aptitude than others to some extent and can master more areas or different kind of areas. Some people do have more of a natural aptitude at certain subjects or a natural aptitude, as you said, with mechanical uh, know-how or with sports or whatever. But we have to just be realistic about what we as human beings can, can accomplish um, as individuals. And we shouldn't always try to be the master of everything. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to learn and pursue and try new things, because oftentimes that can be a very rewarding experience to try to do something that you think you're bad at or try to do something completely new that you've never done before. And it can be an incredible new learning experience. Um, we're often uh, also as human beings, one thing is you don't know what you don't know. And so um, we can live kind of narrow lives where we continue to do the same thing and feel that the world can only be seen in one way. And so looking outside of our perspective, trying new things, doing new things can be a really rewarding experience, even if we sort of know in our heart of hearts that we'll never be the best and we'll never know everything about that subject and we'll never um, completely master it. The pursuit and the trying can be incredibly rewarding. Yeah, well, I, I think your point's well taken. It, it seems right that human beings have areas of expertise that collectively make up a lot of knowledge, but that none of us are all that good at being smart at everything. And I, <laughs> and I don't think I want to be. Philip Greenbach's been my guest. He's an associate professor at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he's author of the book, The Knowledge Illusion. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for being here. Awesome. Nice to talk to you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't all that long ago that eating out was a special occasion. We did it once in a while. Today, a lot of our meals come from restaurants. And eating all that restaurant food has an impact on our health. Darius Mozafarian is a medical doctor, a professor of medicine at the Tufts University School of Medicine, and he is editor-in-chief of the Tufts Health and Nutrition Letter. He's also author of a study about restaurants that was published in the Journal of Nutrition. The study analyzed the dietary selections of more than 35,000 U.S. adults from 2003 to 2016. And I think you'll find this really interesting. Hi, Dariush. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be on. So explain what you were attempting to do with this study in restaurant eating. We were really interested, you know, to understand what people are doing uh, when they go out to eat at restaurants. What's the quality of the food they eat? How often do they eat at restaurants? And this question hasn't been looked at recently. Uh, and so we looked using nationally representative data at about over the last 20 years, uh, at how often people are eating at restaurants and what's the quality of the food that they're choosing. And what'd you find? 
Well, so first, um, you know, Americans are eating uh, at restaurants more than ever. Um, on any given day, about one-third of American adults eat at a full-service restaurant, you know, defined as a restaurant where you'll have a waiter and sit down and have a menu. And almost half, 46% of, of adults uh, will eat at a quick-serve or fast-food restaurant, you know, fast-food place or where you go pick up something at a counter and eat. Now, that none of that actually includes even cafeterias and work sites. This is actual restaurants. So an enormous number of meals uh, are being consumed uh, at restaurants by, by American adults. And when we look at the quality, nutritional quality of the meals based on a validated uh, diet score from the American Heart Association, which you know, tries to capture a, a, balanced, a balanced diet, we found that the nutritional quality of the meals was surprisingly poor. So um, only about 30% of fast food meals were sort of of medium nutritional quality, and the remaining 70% were of poor quality with almost none of, of ideal quality. And when we looked even at full-service meals where you know, you're sitting down and you think, well, maybe your people are choosing healthier food, even there, half of the meals were of poor quality and the other half were of kind of medium quality with very, very few of ideal quality. And over the last 20 years, um, you know, the other disappointing f fact is that that hasn't changed very much. Um, fast food meals of poor quality went down a little bit. It used to be 75% in 2003, and the most recent data now it's 70%, so it's gone down from 75 to 70%. And so in contrast to Americans overall are actually eating a little bit healthier in the last 20 years, that improvement's not coming from restaurants. And so I wonder if this is a surprise to people. Are people thinking, oh, I'm eating healthy? Or I mean, if you go to a fast food restaurant, I don't know that you're, you're not really expecting high quality food or, you know, nutritious food necessarily, right? Well, you know, this is what everybody's doing across all the restaurants in this country. And so you're right, if, if somebody goes to you know, a typical burger place and they get a burger and fries and a soda, they know it's not healthy. Um, but people are also going to all kinds of sit-down restaurants after work or with their families and trying, I think, in many of those cases to think about healthier selections. And, and so I think it is disappointing and surprising uh, how far off we are from restaurants providing healthy healthy foods and how it also really hasn't improved very much um, in about 20 years. And I want to emphasize that, you know, our uh, research using a, a nationally representative um, sample of about 35,000 um, American adults doesn't distinguish the difference between what's on the menu and what people are choosing. We didn't study menu lists. We looked at actually what are people eating. You know, maybe the restaurants are putting all kinds of healthy options on the menus. If you go to restaurants, those options are there, but people aren't choosing them. Well, I've always had this belief that, that part of the problem is that historically, people go to restaurants as a treat. So they tend to throw out, you know, nutrition guidelines out the window because this is a treat. We splurge. But... Now, people go to restaurants so often that they're eating a lot of meals in restaurants, but they still have that mindset of, well, we're eating out. It's a treat. Well, one interesting thing that we looked at was, well, maybe people are going to restaurants because they know it's a treat, whether it's a full service or a fast food restaurant. And so, you know, this is where they're going to binge, they're going to enjoy themselves. And so we grouped um, American adults by how frequently they went to restaurants. Was it once in a while? Um, you know, was it sort of in, in between or was it more than once a day, several times a day? And we thought, well, if, if that's why people are making their, their choices as kind of a treat, the people who go the most frequently are going to have the best uh, choices and the people who eat, um, you know, very rarely are going to be the decadent, decadent ones that choose these unhealthy choices. And we, in fact, found the opposite, that the people who go rarely uh, choose the healthiest meals when they go, and the people that go the most frequently have the worst, worst choices. And so it doesn't seem that people are thinking ahead of time, well, I'm, I'm doing this as a treat. Um, it's just that these are the products that are, that are marketed, that are you know, socially acceptable, could be less expensive, um, that Americans are, are used to eating. So you're not seeing, it, it's not a case of restaurants are being deceptive. They're, they're not dressing up unhealthy meals as healthy and fooling people, uh, right? 
Well, our research, you know, is looking at what people are eating over, you know, almost 20 years in a large national sample, so it has a lot of strength. What it can't do is tell you the reasons. And so, you know, we didn't look at the marketing practices or the advertising practices of restaurants. You know, I, I will say that from my own experience and as a scientist and as a physician watching ads go by, you know, on, on your computer or on, or on the television, there are certainly plenty of examples of deceptive practices where, you know, a hyper-processed sandwich with processed deli meat, processed cheese, processed bread, almost no vegetables at all, is billed as low fat. You know, this only has X grams of fat, so it's good for you. Um, you know, again, our research didn't go into this, but certainly we know from other experiences there's plenty of, of deceptive marketing. And so what do, we, what do we take away from this? I mean, if this is what people are choosing, then this is what people are choosing. Well, right now, you know, we are truly facing a national nutrition crisis. We have more diet-related disease in terms of, of obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, and likely many immune and, and autoimmune diseases, um, poor brain health in adults, poor learning in children. Uh, there is so much diet-related disease in our country, it's, it's estimated to be the number one cause of poor health. And our healthcare system, government budgets, uh, family out-of-pocket costs, and you know what what private businesses are paying for healthcare for their employees is um, you know all being drowned in rising healthcare costs. And so to say, well, this is what people are eating; it's no big deal, you know, is is not the right answer because you know we we literally are are in a crisis of of diet-related disease. And so something needs to be done about it. And we've previously looked at overall nutrition of Americans uh, over the last 20 years. And as I mentioned earlier, it's gotten actually a little bit better. Americans are eating a little bit more fruits and vegetables, a little bit more whole grains. Sugar-sweetened beverages are going down. Nuts and yogurt are going up. The, the changes are pretty modest, and we're still quite a ways away from where we want to be. But on average, overall, Americans' diets are actually slowly improving. And so... If that's true overall, and we see that restaurants, which make up a big proportion of those calories, are not improving, it means that most of the improvements happening outside restaurants and meals that people are buying and preparing for themselves. And so restaurants are not keeping up. And so this means that, that you know, both consumers have a responsibility to, to choose healthier foods, but restaurants have a responsibility to make sure there's healthier options that are on the menu and, and you know, change the defaults. One easy thing to do is change the defaults. If you order something, instead of coming with fries as a default, it comes with a salad as a default rather than the other way around. And then finally, I think government has a role to play. Government's paying for much of this through rising health care costs. And so governments need to create incentives and disincentives, you know, rewards and penalties for companies that, that do the right thing. Like, what would you have the government do? I mean, I don't want the government telling me what to eat. One example is, you know, things that are clearly harmful shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed. And so trans fat used to be allowed. And when we discovered how harmful it was, the FDA said, you know, this is no longer generally regarded as safe. You can't, you can't just put it in, in everything. And so trans fats have largely been eliminated. You know, in, in other more innovative approaches, right, the government could give tax policy relief for restaurants that develop and market healthier foods and could give tax disincentives. Maybe you can't take ad advertising as a deduction if you advertise really unhealthy foods. You can do it, you can sell it, but you can't also re reduce your taxes because you're, you're contributing to you know, rising health care costs. So I think there's innovative tax policy that, that, could, that could be done. And then I think you know, part of this is also just providing um, education to consumers and we have the dietary guidelines every five years. Um, they're not, you know, extremely well-funded to then be translated to the public. And so people are pretty confused about what's a healthy diet and what they should choose. One thing you said, well, a couple things uh, that I, I would take issue with is the idea that people are confused. I don't think people are confused. I mean, they know what healthy food looks like and they know what unhealthy food looks like. If they choose unhealthy food, I don't think they're, you're going to find that they would say, oh, I had no idea. Really? This is not healthy? I don't, I don't think there's the confusion you think there is. Well, I, you know, you are much more, uh, probably better educated and knowledgeable about these issues than, than the vast majority of Americans. There are many polls and uh, many government uh, and industry 
um, reports talking about this consumer confusion, right? Two-thirds of Americans, for example, in a, in a recent Gallup poll said their number one priority for, you know, preventing weight gain is to eat low-fat foods, even though the 2015 dietary guidelines said that we don't have to limit fat anymore. Low-fat diets don't help us keep our weight uh, stable. And so people are, see a, a product that advertises low-fat, they think, oh, that, that must be better for me, um, let alone all the other things I talked about. Plant-based, it must be good for me. Natural, uh, local, it must be good for me. So I, I really do think people are, are, are quite confused. You know, big picture, people probably know that a soda is bad and that fruits and vegetables are good. They kind of get those general contours, but everything in between, I, I think people are mixed up. Yeah, well, maybe so. But, but the idea that low-fat food uh, is the way to lose weight uh, and they came out in 2015 and said that's not necessarily so. Well, but for the previous, what, 30 years, it was necessarily so. So you can't just put out a report and have everybody just buy into it immediately and say, oh, okay, fine. Uh, you're exactly right. And this is why I think a lot more resources uh, need to be you know, uh, put into educating the public um, through a range of, of ways about the changing science. Something that we haven't talked about yet that... I, I guess we, I thought we would have talked about by now in this conversation is the size of restaurant portions, that that is a big health problem because it has raised people's expectations of what a portion is. And it also allows people when they go out and eat to just stuff themselves because they figure, well, I'm paying for this. I mean, if, if I don't want to take it home, I got to eat it now. And they're eating huge huge meals. Well, that's absolutely true. And that's, you know, a very clear economic incentive they have because food is, you know, the cheapest it's ever been in human history as a proportion of, of income or, or, you know, gross domestic product. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't cost much more for the restaurant to put a little bit more food on your plate, especially if they're inexpensive, unhealthy ingredients. And so they put more on your plate so that they can charge a little bit more. And that's, you know, the supersizing of, of both, you know, not only restaurant foods, but supermarket products um, since the 1970s is really a direct function of, of food being, being so inexpensive or the ingredients being so inexpensive. And in contrast, for many of the healthier dishes that are prepared well, they, they do cost more and they're harder to, to make. And so, you know, you're not going to get this massive portion size often of salmon or this massive portion size of some really um, artfully created healthy asparagus because those things are more expensive to create that way to get the fresh asparagus and drizzle it with, you know, excellent extra virgin olive oil and cook it just right is a lot more expensive. But at the end of the day, running a restaurant is a business. You have to give people what they want. You can't tell them what they should eat. That's not why people go to a restaurant. So if the change is going to happen, it seems you have to make people want to change, not ram it down their throat. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And so systems changes are needed to slowly shift consumer knowledge and, and culture and demand. So the same way we, we used cultural change to change habits around smoking or to change habits around people wearing their seatbelts which were kind of unheard of in the 60s or 70s to, to think smoking was bad or wear your seatbelt, but now it's a cultural norm. There's a lot of things that, that um, we can do and, and the government should, should do to sort of start to change the knowledge and culture around healthy eating. And then at the same time, because of those challenges, as I mentioned, government should be rewarding through tax policy or other innovation policies, um, investment policies, they should be rewarding companies that are trying to do the right thing because it's going to save the government money in their in their bottom in their bottom line 28 percent of the federal budget is spent on health care and going up and 30 percent of the average state budget is spent on health care and going up and so if governments want to start to reduce that to bend that curve and to actually start to reduce that they need to start rewarding companies for doing the right thing you're, you're right it's, it's a if a comp, if a restaurant by itself tries to make a change it's much harder that being said there are new chains a lot of new chains that are successful and growing that are really, you know, selling more minimally processed, um, healthier foods, salads, and other things, but they're still a minority. Yeah, right. Well, uh, I, mean, I think all the fast food places, the national chains, offer a salad 
I never, I never see anybody order it. I never, I mean, I'm sure people do, but um, it, it, that's not why people go there. Yeah. Well, having been in, uh, I'm originally from the West Coast, but now I've been in Boston about uh, 17 years, so I'm not going to say this with the right accent, but it's a wicked complex system. You're right. <laughs> well, and, and I've always thought, and I, there's so much evidence, that this whole idea of what makes a meal and, and portion sizes, and someone explained to me that like in, the, in the, the cookbook, The Joy of Cooking, they've revised the recipes for what, the recipe that now, sa- that now says feeds four used to say feeds six because portion size expectations are just so much bigger now that people think that, that if you eat what you used to eat, that's not a whole meal. An example that I often use to, to, to think about this is, is cars. And, you know, in the, in the last century, we were able to reduce deaths per mile driven in cars by over 90%, a massive success. I mean, people used to die, de- deaths from car accidents used to be one of the leading causes of death for many age groups in, in the middle of the last century. So we had this remarkable success of a pretty complicated problem, how you prevent deaths from car accidents. And if you look at what we did, we did address the driver a little bit, but we mostly addressed the product, the car. We addressed the environment, the roads, and we addressed the culture, especially around drunk driving. And if you look at all the changes to the car, crash, uh, you know, uh, 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 crash bags and collapsible steering wheels and shatterproof windshields and safety standards and you know, all the different things we did for the car, all the things we did for the environment, um, guardrails and speed limits and rumble strips and many, many other things, the way, the way you know, highways curve when you go around corners, all of those things were developed you know, over, over many years. And then you look at the culture change, especially around drunk driving with the designated driver campaign and Mothers Against Drunk Driving and other things. To me, that's a a broad roadmap for addressing the food system. You know, we do need to address the consumer, the, the driver, a little bit, and we do need to have more education. But we need to address the product, which is all the foods that are sold in restaurants and in supermarkets. We need to address the environment, where and how we're getting food in cafeterias and sporting events and other things. And we need to we need to address the culture so that you know getting a, a clearly terrible unhealthy meal that's bad for you and your family is no longer culturally seen as as okay or as a treat, and that will take you know a similar multifaceted approach that we took to car safety, which was you know roughly I would say one third this was driven by consumer demand, one third it was driven by innovation and business competing against each other, and one third it was driven by government regulation to say. You know, here's new safety standards for roads or for, for cars. Something that has, has always mystified me is how the concept of eating well, of good eating, not junk, healthy eating, has had the worst press, the worst PR campaign ever. When you just say the term healthy eating, what people hear is sacrifice. I can't, <laughs> right. I can't, it, it's, it's not as good as something that isn't nutritious. And, and yet, a lot of nutritious food actually tastes good, and I've never really understood why no one's ever been able to come up with a, like a fast food place that doesn't serve crap and actually serves things that, that, that are good and people will eat. But, but it, 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 it does seem to be a big PR problem that nutritious food means sacrifice. You know, I, I think you're right. That's a common perception. But as you said, it's kind of like exercise. Once you start exercising regularly, you feel great and you can't ever go back. And similarly, once you really start eating foods that are minimally processed and, and taste good, um, you know, it's really hard to, to go back to unhealthy foods. Part of this is because, as you said, for 30 years, we said, okay, fat's bad for you, all, all kinds. Um, you know, salt is bad for you no matter what. Sugar's bad for you no matter what. So it was a, it was a message of, of abstaining and sacrifice. We're really trying to shift the message with the science to there are really healthy things in, in the food supply. You need to eat these really healthy things in the food supply. Minimally processed, bioactive-rich foods like fruits, nuts, beans, vegetables, minimally processed whole, whole grains, fermented foods like yogurt and probably even cheese are, are, are good for you. Um, and, and that really the worst things in the food supply are full of starch and sugar and salt and, and ultra-processed. 
Uh, a lot of the grains, a lot of the cereals, a lot of the crackers, a lot of the breads, that's actually probably one of the worst things in the food, in the food supply. Well, I think it's an important message, but I think it's going to be a, a tough battle. And the reason I think it's a tough battle is because I don't think people care in the way they need to, because one meal doesn't make a difference, right? No, no one eats one bad meal and gets a heart attack because of that bad meal. At least I hope not. But that there is that, that delay, that y- your diet affects your health later on, but it doesn't affect it now. And so it's really going to be tough to change people's attitudes, but, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Dariush Mozafarian has been my guest. He is a doctor, professor of medicine at Tufts University, and editor-in-chief at Tufts Health and Nutrition Letter. And thank you for being here, doctor. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. Have, have a good day. My son, Owen, is going through the process of getting his driver's license. He has his permit, and we, so we spend a lot of time talking about cars and traffic and driving. And he asked me, he asked me about parking lights. He said, why, don't, why, why does this car have parking lights? So I looked it up. Originally, parking lights were intended to be used when cars were parked on narrow, poorly lit streets to alert drivers that there was a car there. And in some countries, they're still used for that purpose. Interestingly, in almost all countries except the United States, parking lights must be white. That white light is easily visible even in poor conditions. In the U.S., parking lights are typically amber to help distinguish them from white headlights or red brake lights. In the U.S., people sometimes turn on their parking lights when they feel, it's not dark enough to turn on my headlights, so I'll turn on my parking lights. However, in most places in America, it's actually illegal to drive with your parking lights on, even during the day, because parking lights are supposed to indicate a parked car. I've I've never heard of anyone getting a ticket for driving with their parking lights on, but I guess technically you could. Really, you should either have your headlights on or no lights on when you drive. And that is something you should know. We deliver a lot of interesting and useful information on this podcast, and I bet you know people who would like and benefit from all the information we provide. So please tell them about something you should know. Ask them to listen, share the link, and you can feel good knowing that you're responsible for bringing at least some of those listeners to the fold. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.